showtime. Welcome everyone to the Rosie and Bill show. Our guest this week is a former NFL linebacker, cancer survivor, corporate executive, author, motivational speaker. His resilience and ability to overcome life's challenges are matched by his genuine desire to serve and uplift everyone he comes in contact with. Please welcome to the Rosie and Bill show, former special teams captain of our Philadelphia Eagles, Kevin Riley. Kevin, welcome to the show. Wow, what an introduction, guys. And I'm really happy to be with you and Rosie, Bill. Looking forward to the talk today. <laughs> Where do we go from there? Thank you and good night, right? <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, you credit the foundation of faith, family, friends, and fortitude with helping you to overcome challenges and obstacles you face in your life. Where did that foundation come from? Well, Rosie, I had 16 years of Catholic education um, and I had three children within 41 months. Uh, that the bad part of that Catholic education is I was shooting storks, you know, because <laughs> I thought they were bringing them to the house. So, but <laughs> The, the 16 years of Catholic education I had at St. Mary Magdalene grade school, K through uh, eight, uh, Salesianum High School, and then Villanova University really gave me a great moral compass, uh, you know, to grow upon. Not that I believed everything the nuns taught us, but I had a good moral compass that I carried with me early on in my life. And it was really there for me as a major weapon when things went south on me when I was 29 years old and found out that I had this terrible disease called a desmoid tumor. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a lot to deal with. So you feel that that faith is what carried you through that? Oh, without a doubt. There's no doubt about it because um, I was actually, you know, 11 and a half hour operation right before the operation. Um, this is an interesting story. Uh, there were about eight to 10 of us on gurneys in the pre-op area that they, you know, and Sloan Kettering Hospital, where I was operated on, was a great cancer hospital, it was one of, it was all by itself as a leader in the industry back in 79. So we all had a problem. And you know what was really great, and I go a little off the course here of what your, your question was, but what was really great was we had about 30 minutes together and everybody got to know each other introduced themselves and one of the guys started it why are you in here today what are you doing you know where are you from what's your name and we went through that and everybody got to know each other and looking back especially during this pandemic where we've become so divisive as a country you know with some of the problems we've had in the last two years it's just remarkable how that there were men and women in this group black and white there was Jew, Christian, and non-believer. But for that 30 minutes, we were all rooting for each other because we all had a similar problem. And I got to thinking how, you know, how you know, easy it is to go back to a very basic in your life, which is why am I here? 
and I'm facing a, a you know a, a substantial obstacle that I could perish from, and you see this wonderful situation going on. As a matter of fact, the first lady, she was next next to me. Her name was Jennifer, and she was in for a biopsy for breast cancer, and she was going to be the first one wheeled in, and she stopped the guy was the intern that was wheeling her in. He said, hold on, hold on. And she came back and she said, hey, can we all just hold hands and say the Lord's Prayer together? And nobody objected, even uh, Mr. Schwartz that was down at the end, who's Jewish by nature. And he said, I don't know the, the prayer, but if you let me follow along, I think I'll find it. He had no problem with it. It was such a beautiful 30 minutes. Now we all were a little bit, you know, in, in a really good place mentally because we all had a shot before we came down there to take the nerves away but it was something i'll never forget and just building on that right before i went in the doctor came down and uh he had a piece of paper that i had to sign and he said hey i forgot to give you this last night his name was dr marco the man saved my life without a doubt and he said but um you got to sign this it's a release form and he said just sign it and i said i think i'll read it he said just sign it and so I read it and it was only like three paragraphs, but I only remember one sentence and it said, hey, it said, as the adult in this operation, you, you absolutely understand that there is a 30% chance that you will not survive the event. Well, Rosie, as Johnny Carson once said, I did not know that. <laughs> and you know, it's amazing how your life flashes before you in that minute or two that I was being wheeled into the, you know, the operating room. And being a good Irishman that I was, I was even making, you know, uh, negotiations with God. I said, God, if you pull me through this, I promise I'll go on the Rosie and Bill show some <laughs> Tuesday night. But I did make promises. And you know what? When I came out of that operation 11 and a half hours later, I knew I had to keep those promises because I was there. But that was where I really fell back on my faith because I realized that this is it. I've had a wonderful 29 years. I've done some things that people will never do. And if this is it, I just want to say my prayers and it's in God's hands. God bless you. It, it does take a lot of faith and fortitude to surrender like that. Key word, surrender, no doubt about it. Yeah, and, and Kevin, you, you just shared an amazing story. And as you, as you were saying that, and I'm thinking about, well, 30%. That's like, I mean, I'm no math major, but that's three out of 10. That's, that's a pretty powerful thing to be thrust on you at that moment. But that, to me, what I took from that story, well, there was a lot I actually took from that story, but you always seem to find the bright side of things and the positive side to things. And that's something that before we go any further for everyone watching, I want to make sure that folks know about this book. We're going to ask Kevin a little bit about uh, the book Tackling Life, because this book that Kevin wrote is filled with some pretty incredible highs, some pretty devastating lows. You just heard about some of it right there within that story that Kevin shared. But one that I wanted to just bring up, or one of the few that I wanted to bring up, has to do with the night that you were drafted. And I remember reading the book and thinking, uh-oh, at one point during that night, it was like, what's going on here? But then you got the call. So can you share with our viewers what it was like to find out that you were drafted by the Miami Dolphins? And at that time, they were a pretty good football team. Yeah, 
They were the world champions. They just came off the 1972 season without having a defeat. They won every game during the season, the playoffs, and the Super Bowl. No team's ever done it since. And by the way, looking back now, I wondered why I was the last guy cut from that team. And I was so disappointed, but there are six Hall of Famers on that football team. So I was in very, very good company. Yeah, but what happened is uh, the year before we had Mike Ciani drafted number one, our wide receiver. He went to the Oakland Raiders. And in the second round, uh, my compadre, my next door neighbor on the defensive front was a guy by the name of John Babinez. He was drafted in the second round by the Dallas Cowboys. And because of those two guys, they, the scouts that came to watch them play got to see me play also. And I happened to have a really good last couple of games my junior year and got on to, you know, the, um, you know, I got, I got onto their spotlight. So to make a long story short, I'm hoping that I'm going to go in the first day of the, um, of the, of the draft. There were 17 rounds in those days. And I figured there'd probably be eight rounds in the first day. Now here I am in a dormitory, no cell phones. I had to put, two freshmen that were football players to guard the payphone in the dormitory because that was the phone that was going to receive the call if I got it. I waited all day. I promised I would not have one beer until I got drafted and everybody else was celebrating in my, in my dorm room. And at the end of the sixth round, they didn't think they were going to go to the seventh. And we had a basketball game on campus at Villanova down at the field house. I was so depressed that I felt like I let everybody down I didn't go the first day. Gosh, we were partying it all afternoon except for me in my dormitory room. So we get down to the basketball game and at halftime, I'm sitting in there still worried about the next day. Boy, I hope I get drafted tomorrow. You start to lose confidence. You know, what are they thinking of me? And all of a sudden I get a tap on my shoulder and I look up and our defensive coordinator, John Rosenberg, he's got seven fingers out and he's mouthing Miami and get up here. Well, it was the athletic office. so. I don't even remember my feet hitting the ground. I like flew up there and it was Don Shula on the phone letting me know that I was just drafted in this uh, second person drafted in the seventh round by the world champion Miami Dolphins. I just got chills with you saying that. So here I am thinking I just had a really bad day and I didn't. The world champion Miami Dolphins think I'm good enough to play for them. Oh my goodness. And Don was very, very happy to, that I was still on the board, he said, because they had some other people they had to draft first that they had needs for. So to make a long story short, I got down back to my group and the word had spread throughout the pavilion down there and the team had come out to do warm-ups before the second half and the announcer announced it over the, over the loudspeaker. By the way, welcome Kevin Riley, who just got you know, drafted by the world champion Miami Dolphins. And I got like 7,000 people in the fan in the, in the field house standing, give me an ovation. I had to take a bow. The guys that were warming up, the guys that I knew that were in my dorm came out, came over, gave me a big hug. Oh, my goodness. It couldn't have got any better. It couldn't have been scripted any better. So those are the kind of things that happen good that sounded like they started bad. And so it's one of those, you know, roller coaster rides that I had during this whole journey. If you don't mind, Kevin, that roller coaster, it, it went up and, and you just kind of hit a peak there getting drafted by the uh, world champions undefeated Miami Dolphins. And then, as you mentioned, you're the last cut. But shortly after that, 
there's a part in the book, and again, I don't want to give everything away, but, but there's just certain aspects of this book that really resonated with me, Kevin, and one of them was some advice you got from your dad that seems so simple, but so straightforward. Just get in your car and drive up to the vet and introduce yourself to Coach McCormick, and it turned out to be pretty good advice, didn't it? He tortured me for an entire seven days. I had an agent who was handling Raleigh Fingers, Pete Rose, and I was waiting for this guy to hook me up. And he said, somebody's going to get hurt. They're going to need you. And as Shula said uh, to me when he saw how dejected I was when he brought me into his office and told me I was being released, they had picked another guy up off of waivers from Penn State. who was a second round draft pick. And um, he saw me dejected and he lifted my chin up and he said, hey, listen, you just didn't get cut by the pot town firebirds. You got cut by the world champion Miami Dolphins. You're going to get picked up. And that, get, that gave me a little hop in my step as I got on the plane to go back to Philly. But to get back to your story, my dad, every morning at breakfast, I'd be waking up, see if I, you know, and the phone had any messages on it that came in late at night and having breakfast with him. And day after day, he said, if I was you, I wouldn't wait for that agent to call. I'd go up there and tell the, the, the Philadelphia Eagles and Mike McCormick that you're available. Well, maybe they'll give you a tryout. Dad, that's not how it works today. You don't do that. That would be foolish. That would be, oh, that's why I have an agent. You don't want to even get involved. I said, this isn't a 1945 movie. I said, this is, you know, this is the 1970s. So anyway, he tortured me so bad. I said, you know what? I'm going up there today. I'm going to make a fool of myself and I'm going to shut you up. <laughs> I went up and I, uh, I made the poor security guard feel so insecure because I didn't have an appointment or anything, but I showed him Miami Dolphin stuff and he did not want to let me in because I wasn't on the list. I said, look, they must've messed it up. They just called me last night, but he didn't want to not let me in because he'd be in worse trouble if I really did have a tryout. So I went and I sat in the stands, waited till practice was over. As soon as it was over and I saw the coach McCormick was alone and was leaving the field, I jumped the fence. And I think he thought I was going to attack him because he moved back a little bit. <laughs> and I went, coach, my name's Kevin Riley. And I just got cut by the Miami Dolphins. And I was wondering if you may be able to handle me, maybe bring me up here and have a tryout. I even got my own spikes and helmet and stuff. I could come up tomorrow. If, 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 if there's any reason you think I could have a tryout. He went, yo, yo, settle down. <laughs> First of all, I, I didn't know who you were coming out of the stands like that. You sound a little nervous. So then he called over the, um, the linebacker coach, and he also called over the head scout they had. And uh, they said, yeah, we had him on the board. He's from Villanova. To make a long story short, Rosie, he, he said, bring your stuff up tomorrow, your shoes. We got equipment here. They were laughing that I said I'd bring my own <laughs> And uh, I went up the next morning. Well, first of all, I had to go back to my dad was owned a liquor store and he was taking inventory and I had to go in. I said, how am I gonna tell him this worked out? And uh, I went in and he's taken inventory and he listened. And I thought he's going to just jump my rear end. And the only thing he said is, I just want to make sure that that agent doesn't get one nickel of that contract. But <laughs> 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 up the next day, I had a tremendous workout and they signed me on the spot. And the rest is history. I spent two years with the ball club before I went to the, Maya, or the, the, the uh, New England Patriots. But I want to tell all your fans out there, I played for the Patriots before they started cheating, Rosie. <laughs> well, we're sure glad to hear that. But I want to know, 
What was that moment like? What kind of an adrenaline rush was it to put on that Eagles jersey and walk through the tunnel at Veterans Stadium? Let me back up and tell you, at 10 years old, I'm going to the Eagles game at Franklin Field with my dad and my uncles every Sunday. And I dreamed in the backyard that someday I'd be a Philly or someday I would be a Philadelphia Warriors because they weren't the 76ers yet. Or someday, maybe I would be good enough on this six foot one frame that I had in high school at 155 pounds. Maybe I could go to college, put on some weight. Maybe, maybe I could play with the Philadelphia Eagles. You know, I feel bad for the kids today who are so attached to all of the technology we had. But when you we were waiting for a ride back in the late 50s, early 60s, you'd grab a ball and go shoot it up and or throw again, a baseball against the wall, a rubber ball, or, or throw a football around, you know, and you were pretending. You know, and pretending is another way of dreaming. And don't take it for granted. That goes on that little track in our, in our subconscious, you know, maybe someday if everything goes right. And so imagine me thinking those things and imagine me standing in the tunnel on Monday night football when we're going to play the, the uh, Dallas Cowboys, our arch rivals who have beaten us eight times in a row. I'm at the last one in line because I'm captain of the special teams and I'm pinching myself. And I'm looking on the, it's my name on the back of this jersey. Is this happening? Well, by the time they introduced the special teams that night because they wanted to get the 12th man in the crowd into the game. And they didn't have no trouble with that because the 700 level, which is legendary blue collar, they knew from, we were the blue collar workers. We were the crazy guys. We were the suicide squad. Well, by the time the third guy was introduced, they got it. The, Rosie and Bill, the hair on the back of my head was standing up. When they get to my introduction, the guy's a Philly guy who's introducing the players and he goes, and now from Villanova University, number 52 in your program, captain of the special teams, and from Wilmington, Delaware, homebred, number 52, Kevin Riley. I didn't even remember my feet touching the AstroTurf. When I got out there, these guys were, the 10 other guys, they were setting high jump records. The place was just electric. We almost wore ourselves out before the game because there was so much excitement, so much adrenaline pumping through us. Well, cut to the chase. With three seconds left on the clock, it's a tie game at 10-10. The field goal team is called. I'm on the field goal team and we go out. And the Dallas Cowboy head coach, Coach Landry, called two timeouts to try to ice our kicker. And his name was Tom Dempsey. Tom Dempsey was no usual kicker. He played defensive end uh, for Division Three team. But he had half a foot. He was a thalidomide baby. And I don't know why they let him kick with that half a foot, but it was definitely uh, an advantage. He was a tough guy. And so when Landry called the timeouts back to back, they want to ice the kicker, not Tom. You know what Tom did during the timeouts? He grabbed each one of us by the face mask and he said, if you get your block, I'll make this kick. You get your block and you went down the line. Well, I had to get two guys. I had to get the guy that was coming in uh, from the guard center gap and I had to make sure he didn't penetrate. And then I had to spin off of him and get this guy that was flying in from left field, a wide receiver who was going to go unblocked that was just going to try to on an angle, maybe leap and, and, and block the kick. Well, I got the first guy. I barely got the 
the second guy, and I had to throw my body at him to get him, and I'm rolling on the ground as I see the ball go through the uprights. I cannot believe it. This is my 15 minutes of fame. I'm 225 pounds. I have a 400-pound bench press. I, I run a 4740, and I'm only 26 years old, and every girl I ever dated is watching tonight. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't get any better it didn't it was just one of those moments in time i'll never forget i get excited talking about it as you can see because this was a dream come true from this little boy in blue rock manor just off the concord pike who played in a monday night game and had an impact on us winning it just as you're talking about it i'm like i'm totally pulled back in time like i'm on the edge of my seat i mean that just sounds absolutely incredible it was a great night, no doubt about it. And but, you know, five, not interrupt Bill, but Bill, you know, and the story goes in the book, five years later to the exact month, as high as that moment was, I was at an all-time low in a hospital room in Sloan Kettering. No, absolutely. And that was that was something there was another another story that I just I just wanted to touch on briefly, Kevin, because uh, as I said, there were certain <clears throat> aspects of the book that, you know, whether they brought me back in time or I felt like I was taking that journey with you through these stories. And, and as you're telling that one, getting to take that one again. And I had forgotten about Tom Dempsey and, you know, he had he held that record for the longest field goal for a long time. 63 yards. Right. Joe Scarpatti, the holder with the Saints. And uh, I, there was a chap chapter nine, uh, the visitor and the running back. And you talk about two people who couldn't have been any more different in, in kind of how they approached your situation and interacted with you about your situation, like you said, at that low point. And the relationship that formed with you and Frank, the visitor, and, and with Rocky Blyer, can you talk to us just a little bit about what that meant to you and how, at that low point, how important it was to to have that relationship with Rocky Blyer because folks, there's some quotes and things in the book you've got to check out, but it clearly had an impact on you. Well, this was probably the worst day of my life. I am now out of ICU. I'm alive, but now I have to deal with, I'm missing my left shoulder, my left arm and four ribs. I'm missing half of the left side of my upper body. And I'm waiting for the doctor to come in and <clears throat> Right before the doctor came in, a guy appeared at my doorway, and I had told the mate, I had told the the nurse uh, that was on duty, and she was the manager that I didn't want any phone calls or any visitors today. And she says, "What are you going to do? Have a pity party?" And I said, "Yeah, I think I am. I don't think I've hit rock bottom yet." She says, "Well, why do you know that?" I said, "You see those little three little pictures that are laying face down," and I pulled them up so she could see them. They were my three kids: a two-year-old, a one-year-old, and an infant. I said, "Every time I look at them, I tear up." I don't know if I'm gonna to have to go on permanent disability. I don't know if Dr. Markov got all of the tumor. I don't know if I'm gonna to have to have you know, chemotherapy. I don't know a lot of things. And I just gotta get my head wrapped around this situation. So please hold my phone calls and please no visitors today. Well, about 30 minutes into my pity party, a guy appears at the doorway and he knocks on you know, the frame. And before I could say anything, I didn't recognize him. He had a white schmock on and he also had credentials. And he walked right into my room. And as he walked closer to me, I could see we had something in common. He was missing his left arm as a result of a World War, World War II battle that he was in 
uh, and it was, you know, it was D-Day in Normandy. He had lost his arm in that battle. And he was there strictly as a volunteer to help me understand the challenges I would have moving forward with one arm. And, you know, he brought me this knife that I use today. That's a, it's called the Alaskan knife that I can rock back and forth to cut my food with. And then he told me about some other things that I wouldn't be able to do. Don't be jogging, Kevin, because I know you're an athlete and you like the 5Ks, but you've got so much weight on one side of your arm, uh, you know, one side of your body, you'll have disc problems. And don't do this and don't do that. And I thought, my goodness, I haven't even started to think about all of the problems I'm going to run into. Then he saw that he was, I was spiraling down mentally because I really wasn't ready for this talk. I wasn't ready for Frank. I didn't need any more doubts about this situation. I'm already having a bad day. He was making it worse, although he's trying to help. He really was. And he says to me, what do you do for a living? And I said, well, I'm an executive with Xerox. Well, are they going to have you back? I said, I don't know. You know, I, I just don't know. He said, let's pretend they are. What do you have to wear to work each day, Kev? I said, well, I got to wear a suit, coat, and, you know, with a shirt and tie. And I said, dress shoes like you have on those wingtips, those black wingtips that you're wearing. I got a pair like those in my closet. He said, not like this pair, you know. And we argued for a couple seconds. And he said, give me your hand for a minute. I said, okay. And he takes my hand. And he said, you feel this little flap? I said, oh, yeah. It blended right in with the shoe. He said, tug on this for a second. Now pull it up. And when I pulled it up, it was a Velcro flap. And you see, the shoes were pre-tied. And he said, if you're going to have to wear dress shoes that are tie shoes, you're going to have to get like these shoes here with the Velcro flap. And I said, why? He said, you'll never be able to tie your shoes again. It can't be done one-handed. I've been trying for over 30 years. Whoa. And he said, pull on my tie. And at that point, I was really glad he didn't ask me to pull on his finger. But I pulled on his tie. And it was one of those clip-on ties that I had worn, you know, to grade school, Catholic grade school. I was the oldest of six kids. My mother didn't have time to tie my tie, so I had a clip-on tie. And Rosie, being the oldest of six kids, I never slept alone till I was married. But that's another story <laughs> for another day. But he said, you're going to have to get these clip-on ties because you'll never be able to tie your tie again. It can't be done one-handed. I've been trying for over 30 years. So when he left that day, I thought... Oh my goodness, there must be a thousand things I haven't even thought of yet. I thought about buttons and zippers and keyboards, oh my. And just then, the head nurse comes in, she said, are you gonna answer that phone? I said, I didn't even hear it ringing. That's how my mind was going. And I said, no. I said, I told you no phone call. She said, you wanna to talk to this guy. And so I picked it up and it was Rocky Blyer. Now we weren't great friends, but we were, we had known each other. He went to Notre Dame, I went to Villanova. We played the Pittsburgh Steelers every preseason because of the proximity that we are close. And I would go over to his locker room in Pittsburgh and say hello to him and the guys that he knew, that I knew from him that went to Notre Dame, and he would come to our place. So we were acquaintances at best, and we were rivals too. So here is a guy that I know his story. In Vietnam, in his last 60 days, he left training camp to go to Vietnam, not to the National Guard. He wanted to do his duty. He was a hero before he got into the NFL. But he got shrapnel so bad in the right knee that they wanted to fuse his leg at the knee. And he refused, refused to allow the doctors in Vietnam to do that. Upon being released, the captain who did operate on him came out, gave him his release forms and said, 
why wouldn't you let us do our job and fuse your leg at the knee? And he said, yeah, because I've got a, two doctors that the president of the Steelers has, a, has, has gotten for me to give me a physical when I get back to Pittsburgh to see if there's any possibility of me playing football again. And he said, Kevin, I want to tell you, it was the most humbling experience of my life. That doctor laughed out loud at me and said, Blyer, you need a reality check, son. He said, not only will you never, ever, ever play another down of football, but you'll be lucky if you can walk again without a limp. And when that pain gets bad enough, you'll remember me. And you remember I told you, you needed to get this done. Rocky said he had his own doubts on the plane ride home. But when he got there, he decided, what do I got to lose? So he went in and he saw the two physicians. And after they examined him, they went to the, the uh, president, the owner, Art Rooney, who happened to be another Notre Dame grad. That was another connection he had with Rocky. Rocky was a Notre Dame graduate. And he said, you know what? These guys think that if they can use you as a guinea pig and you'll work really hard, they know that because of your work ethic, you might have a chance of coming back. They're going to try using some cadaver ligaments and some, it's a pilot program and you don't have to sign up if you want, but they told me it's going to take two years and about two more operations. If you're up for it, I'll put you on the payroll for those two years. You come back, you go to training camp in two years, you make the team great. And if you don't, we can all go home and say, we tried our best. Rocky said, I'll have it. And the rest is history. Not only did he make the team, he's got four Super Bowl rings, four Super Bowl rings. He was the second leading ground gainer next to Franco Harris, who he did a lot of blocking for in those four Super Bowls. So here is a guy that found out through my special teams coach at the, the Philadelphia Eagles, Dick LeBeau, what had happened to me, and he felt necessary to give me a call because someone had helped him along the way. You know about paying it forward? He was paying it forward. And I told him about Frank, and he listened very carefully. And then he said, with an attitude I'll never be able to, to to do or replicate. He said, you must promise me something. I said, what? He said, you must promise me you'll never quit on anything unless you try it a dozen times. I said, listen, Rocky, this guy that was in here, he's been missing an arm for over 30 years. I think he's a little more of an expert than you or I. And that's when Rocky shot right back at me and said, Kev, let me tell you something about experts. Experts built the Titanic and amateurs built the Ark. Experts can be wrong. And he wouldn't let me leave until I made that promise to him that I wouldn't quit on anything unless I tried it a dozen times. After I made that promise, he said, okay, reality check here. You're going to fail hundreds and thousands of times. And the biggest problem you're going to have is patience. You're an A personality, just like me. That's why we, you know, played special teams. This is why we made it from grit, from grit and grime. And he said, so you're going to have to step back and instead of counting to 10, I want you to say this little poem to yourself so you'll go on with the challenge again. And he said, memorize this poem that I send to you because it helped me and it's gonna help you. Well, I've said the poem a thousand times, Rosie, and it goes like this. If you think you're beaten, you are. If you think you dare not, you don't. If you like to win, but you think you can't, it's almost a sense that you won't. If you think you're outclassed, you've gone. You gotta think higher rise. You gotta be sure of yourself before you can win the prize. If you think you'll lose, you're lost For, because we find success begins with a fellow's will. It's all in the state of mind. Remember life's battles don't always go to the biggest, fastest, or smartest man, but sooner or later, the man who wins 
is the man who thinks he can. Mm. I followed that advice. I can tell you there are three absolute things I cannot do. I cannot play the guitar. I cannot jump rope by myself. And I cannot give the number one sign left-handed to angry motorists on I-95. <laughs> but I will tell you this. I have run in four or five half marathons, a full marathon, and I've broken 90 in golf on two occasions, something I never did with two arms. And I don't say that to your audience like, hey, look at me and pump my check. I say that because this is the valuable lesson that I learned from Rocky Blyer. This is a quote that he left with me, okay? And it said, the human spirit is stronger than anything that can happen to it. The human spirit is stronger than anything that can happen to it. And if you don't believe that, were you watching on Sunday when Phil Mickelson at the age of 50, who hasn't been in a top 10 in two years, won a major tournament? And a lot of it was the four inches between his ears. So that is the message I give to people because no matter how bad things get, we have to have perspective. And perspective is I have a roof over my head. I'll eat three meals today. I have friends and family who care. I'll get past this with their help. And when they need it, I'll give them my help. Well, you are certainly living everything that you're talking about. It's definitely not lip surface. And that's why it's so powerful and so inspiring. Uh, each week, we have the opportunity to have some amazing guests on our show. And there's some, some people that we've come to know and, and see that in addition to being great talents, they're great people. And every once in a while, we, we get to do something really special where we get to have someone on the show who we personally admire. And we both admire you for who you are, for what you've done. And it just really has meant a lot to us personally for you to come on the show. And we look forward to you getting back out there, inspiring those people, lifting more people up, getting that word out the way that you do. And thank you so much for coming on here and doing it with us. Hey, I want to thank both of you for inviting me because when you air this, whenever you do, uh, it's going to be an incredible you know, message to maybe if, I, if two people are uplifted by this, I'd be happy for it. That's what it's about. And maybe we'll get five or six, you know, that changes their life or their outlook on life. But, you know, we are living in a country that uh, is the biggest complaint department in the world. I mean, we complain more than any other country. One of the reasons we have a lot of things to complain about. And, you know, I'm playing this little game with Paula about a year ago. Uh, there was a book out. I'm trying to think of the name of the book, the exact name, but it was called The Complaint Book or uh, something like that. And it was written by a guy that had written several and I just want people to think about this in perspective. It's been a rough time during the pandemic, and now we're coming out of it. And I know I'm going to cherish things that I took for granted before. But, you, you know, one of the things that we don't realize is how often we complain. And in this guy's book, he talks about, I don't know where he got the number, but he said it cost the corporations in, this, in our country about $3 billion a year to thwart because of social media, you know, people can go on and rip anybody, you know, for anything. And I've come to the conclusion that 10% of the people in our country, unfortunately, are against everything. They're just against, they're against it. So you're going to run into that. But one of the things that he put in there, there's a little game you can play with your spouse or one of your people at work. 
just to show you how often we complain. And it has to do with when you complain, that person is allowed to say, but like if I'm sitting in traffic and I go to Paula, oh my gosh, I can't believe this traffic. She'll say, but, and I'll say, but you know what? If I had to sit in traffic, it's a beautiful day to do so. You have to match the negative comment with a positive, with a positive statement. What it does, it makes you realize how many times a day we are just negatizing ourselves. And so one last word is just, you know, there's, it's a better world out there. And God will help you if you get down on your knees and pray. It's either yes, no, or not right now. But take care of yourself. Take care of the people around you and be kind. Just be kind. If you be kind, you're going to be happier. Here's another thing that one other thing, and I'll leave you with this. I get these people who have these problems and they're venting, you know, the fact that they're feuding with a family member. They're feuding with a friend. They're feuding with somebody at work. And they're thinking about revenge, getting back. You know, how do I, you know what? You're letting people rent space in your head that are causing you problems. And as a psychology major, I can tell you, your brain can only handle one emotion at a time. So if you're working on anger and revenge, okay, joy and peace are somewhere sitting in left field. <laughs> so think about what you're doing. You're letting the people that are making your life miserable, you're letting them make it more miserable by letting them rent, rent space in your head. Let it go. Put it out of your sight. Say hello to people. Make eye contact. You know, there's a couple things in my book about the number I, ha I have. Uh, I get a lot of stares, especially at the beach when I'm not wearing my prosthetic device. And uh, I tell people that there's four types of stares, you know, and it's okay. Because we as human beings, that's natural for us to stare. But when you stare at somebody that might be different, make eye contact and say something positive. Hi, how are you today? Don't look away because that's a sign of rejection. So just be kind out there. Everybody's got problems. The only people in this world without problems are buried six feet in the ground. And on that note, <laughs> we will say thank you because that is all such great advice and it's practical advice and things that we can all implement in our lives each day. So thank you so much, Kevin. Hey, and I'm pretty sure that show. more than five or six people are going to be uplifted mm -hmm. by listening to your message and watching our show. And we are so grateful that you came on the show today. So thank you. And folks, we thank you for tuning in and we look forward to seeing you next week. Have a great day.